0: Okay, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, could you turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12? i going to be looking at section beginning in verse 18 of Mark, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. You should be able to follow on the screen uh, behind me there the different scriptures that we look at. So I think the buckets have done their jobs. I'm going to read Mark 12... And from verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures Or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So here... Uh, we have the next passage that we're looking at in Mark's Gospel. And in the last little while, it's it's been a season of fairly intense confrontation between Jesus and um, religious leaders and authorities of the day who are all trying to, one way or another, catch him out, to trick him. They've got kind of a, a dual plan, I suppose. On the one hand, they want to make sure that they kind of cause trouble for Jesus in front of the Romans, because the Romans have the authority to bring the death penalty. So they're trying to bring him into trouble with the Romans. They're also trying to reduce his popularity among the people by, um, by discrediting him in some way. So last time we were in Mark's Gospel, we looked at the section which in my Bible has the, the heading given to it by the, the translators, paying taxes to Caesar. That was the question that the Pharisees and the Herodians asked, very political question. That question was explicitly designed to cause trouble with the Romans. They want Jesus to say something that will upset the Romans. And whilst it's a trick question, we also thought, actually, there's, there's something significant about the question all the same, because we can, we're confronted with a world which is often messy and complicated. How do we live in a messy and complicated world? We answered, We looked at last time round. This time, the question is not so much a political one, but as a theological one. The Bible says, So what do you say? And it's no longer, it's, I don't think the Romans would be particularly interested in Jesus' answer to this one, but the people would be. And so the Sadducees are trying to discredit Jesus in front of the people, in effect, with the question not how do we live life on the earth, but what happens when we die? It's a question of eternity. We've gone from the realm of politics and Caesar and taxes and so on to, to eternity, to questions of life and death and the afterlife and the resurrection. And so it's another trick question, but it's another massive issue, another big, uh, another big issue. What happens when we die? That's what we're going to consider today. Uh, we'll look at what the Bible says. We'll look at what the Sadducees say, and we'll look at what Jesus says in this passage, but we 'll begin by considering what well, what do people say? what do you think as well? I was looking at a couple of surveys, one which was just conducted a, a couple of years ago, a global survey um, of eighteen thousand people living across twenty three nations, which revealed in that sample fifty one percent believe in God, and also fifty one believe in an afterlife well that 's interesting, so it 's a majority, but we might consider the whole world as much as we can comprehend it, and different uh, different cultures, different religions, different worldviews right across the globe and think well that doesn 't surprise me um, too much, uh, perhaps when people have had the opportunity to um, develop their economy and their lifestyle. Maybe some of that faith in the supernatural will erode like it has done in this nation. Well, in the UK, um, a survey was conducted in 2009, published in The Telegraph, of 2,000 people. Guess what percentage of people in that survey believed in life after death? Was it above 51 or beneath 51? You might think it was beneath, Rachel. You can guess if you like. Yeah, yeah. What would you say? Drum roll. Or is it, well... I've given it away, haven't I? Rubbish. You thought 37. Do I hear any higher advances on 37? Higher. 61. A little bit less than that. 52 was close. 53% life after death. 55% believe in heaven That's quite intriguing, isn't it? Anyway. um, (laughs) Yeah. 70% believe in the human soul, or I think that would stand to mean believe that we're not just physical, we're not just material, we're not just flesh and blood. But uh, the conclusion was actually people have a very, in this country, very diverse an unorthodox set of beliefs. In other words, perhaps in this nation, by and large, over the course of the past couple of generations, people have ditched the church, ditched God, but they haven't quite managed to ditch this idea there must be more than just this life. And so sometimes, you know, often we are we are confronted with death, aren't we? Uh, I think actually in my life, very personally, I wasn't confronted by it for a very, very long time. Uh, my grandparents all made it to near 100, or certainly well into their 90s. And um, I can remember the, the, the shock of it, of, of going to the first, my first funeral um, uh, of, a, of a family friend. Sometimes when uh, when death confronts us, we find out a little bit of what people might say, because they might say things to you, or um, or to those who are Bereaved and and well-intentioned things are said that the person's gone to a better place. Perhaps that they're now uh, looking down on us. Intriguingly, when Princess Diana passed away in 1997, uh, lots of the tributes to her um, kind of written down, because obviously it was a huge shock. Uh, National grief meant that there were just vast... Amounts of flowers being laid in public places. The whole, well, yeah, the whole nation was affected. And there were numerous books of condolence which would be in different cathedrals and different public places over the, over the nation. Uh, lots of those tributes from members of the public um, were to the effect that she's become an angel. She was an angel on the earth and now she's gone to be an angel in heaven, a real one. Um, and other ideas presented of what happened to her, she was so significant, she was so special, surely this can 't be it. Um, the nation at large um, pondered, uh, but sometimes those nations notions can just think, well obviously we, no one 's well nobody here living on the earth has actually died, been buried. They're certified as having passed away, and they then come back to life to tell us what it's like. So none of us know, in that sense, from personal experience or from hearing from someone else's personal experience in the here and now. Um, So we can look at those ideas, or we can hear those things, and say, okay, well, it's well-intentioned, but it's just a lot of nonsense. And so there are people who think, no, all, all that exists is what we can see, what we can feel, what we can touch, what we can dissect, what we can conduct an experiment on, that's it, get used to it, we're made of dust and we'll return to being dust. Well, what do you say? What do you believe? You might be here because you're with your parents and uh, this is the regular thing that you do as a family on a Sunday and you know what your parents believe and you know what some other people believe. Um, this is perhaps a time for you to be considering, what, what do you believe is is true? What happens after we die, we're all confronted by it at some point. One commentator has written that we we actually live in the land of the dying, and we have a hope of being one day in the land of the living. And you read the passage that we just looked at, and obviously the question is not genuine. Obviously, this is not a real scenario that the Sadducees have come across. It's hypothetical, but it does illustrate we live in the land of the dying. You know, uh, there were seven brothers, first married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow and he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. Um, so sometimes we're, we're confronted with death and sometimes for those who are, are grieving, that becomes the point of, re- of thinking about it afresh. Actually, what do I think? What, what do I believe? What does happen next? Now, what does the Bible say? As what do, what do people say. We could speculate all day and conduct surveys of our own. But what does the Bible say? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God, or we're shown that God created everything um, in the universe. And in, in chapter 1, verse 26 and verse 27, we're, we're told um, that then the Lord said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And all the way through, on all of the different days during which God has been um, busy creating everything, it's, it's kind of been rounded off with God saw that it was good. And it's only after this point that, Uh, when the first man and woman had been made, that God saw all that he'd made and said that it was very good. There's something special, um, uh, uniquely special, about humanity, about God creating man and woman. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 describes a little bit more poetically of how Jesus formed the first man. And we're told there, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So consider, well, what are we then? Actually, we are made out of dust. I was conducting a, a funeral a couple of weeks ago and uh, we committed somebody, somebody's body, to be consumed. Um, Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Actually, in the confident hope that this person's already gone to be with the Lord. Why is that? Well, we're made out of dust, but we're also um, given life by the the breath of life that comes from God. In other words, the Bible is presenting us already in the first pages that we are not just a body. We're not just matter we 're not just physical, that there is something spiritual about us, and um, then we could move on. we could move on to job and job chapter nineteen verse twenty five Job says, "I know that my redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God he had an expectation that even when his skin had been destroyed he would see God and not in some disembodied sense either if people do believe in heaven if people do believe in an afterlife you wonder how do they imagine that to be I wonder if for many it's the idea that we are just somehow we'd be spiritually floating around in a very nebulous vague way Because we no longer have a body, because that's returned to dust. Well, the Bible presents something uh, distinct. Hence, we're talking about resurrection, which is therefore about having a body, having a physical frame in eternity. There's lots of Psalms that speak of um, this eternal hope. For example, Psalm 16, verse 9 onwards. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you did not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy ones see decay. You've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So David there, the psalmist, is speaking of this, this hope. Eternal pleasures are awaiting. And we will not be forgotten, we will not be abandoned In the grave, we could look too at Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19. But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. In other words, the grave is not the final resting place. And whilst this body that we, that we currently have will decay, there's hint and expectation that we will be embodied. We will have a body in glory forever, that we can be filled with eternal uh, pleasures forever. So when we get to Mark's Gospel, we've already heard a number of times Jesus predicting not just that he would die, but that he would rise again three days uh, later, if you want the references, that would be chapter 8 verse 31, chapter 9 verse 31, chapter 10 verse 34. There are other references too, but in Mark's Gospel, those are the three key predictions. Jesus predicted that He would rise again. The apostles witnessed that, and they testify to its truth. And so, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, What what will happen to those who have already died? If they were expecting Jesus to return very soon uh, to take people to glory, their worry was those who've already died will get left behind. Paul's writing to to encourage them. He writes to the Hebrews. uh, Very neatly, succinctly, in chapter 9 of Hebrews and verse 27, reveals uh, aspects of our biblical worldview in this subject that just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people but just homing in on verse 27 see look biblical worldview is we are destined to die once and after that to face judgment following that judgment we will um Be with him in glory if we've trusted in Christ or be without him in hell if we haven't. So just a quick look at what the Bible says. What do the Sadducees say? Now who are the Sadducees? They are a wealthy, powerful and influential group of leaders who at the time were in charge of the temple, in charge of the, the the trading that took place in the temple. So we can understand, therefore, why they might be particularly upset with Jesus, because Jesus just a, a little while ago has come into the temple, has turned tables over, and has declared kind of judgment on this corrupt machine. They're not very happy about this. They they sit at that very high and influential. Uh, level. They're part of the Sanhedrin, the group that will uh, go on to um, condemn Jesus, and they're very materialist. It would be easy to assume, two thousand years ago, no one was very sceptical about the supernatural. Everyone believed in some kind of god, and everyone believed, therefore, in an afterlife. Um, science has obviously done away with the need for faith in the supernatural, some might say. But actually, we're looking back 2,000 years, and we're finding a group of people who, although they're very religious, <coughs> and believed in God, they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in life after the grave. One might wonder how they got there. We'll come to that uh In just a moment. That's why they're asking this question. They're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to make him look silly. In front of other people. With a question that would be difficult to answer. Um, In After the resurrection. Whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Um, It's a daft question isn't it? And it's. A silly hypothetical scenario. Nevertheless, if you have been married more than once and you go into glory, you could be a little bit nervous. Who out of you am I now married to? We've got eternity to relate. This could be a little bit a little bit tricky. So the the Sadducees think that the resurrection is just a daft idea. And whilst they're very religious, actually many people today might think the same. Oh, It's just just daft, it's just nonsense. Okay, people say nice things. I'm sure she's gone to a better place. I'm sure he's looking down on us now. Um, And so on. I receive those intentions, but I still think it's total nonsense. Because I'm just believing, I'm just trusting in that which is physical, that which is scientifically evidenced and so on Um, the Sadducees might also think that believing in the resurrection is very dangerous in other words they've seen what Jesus has done in the temple they will have seen what other revolutionaries have done opposing Rome they didn't want to oppose Rome Rome were helping them stay in their wealthy privileged position So they didn't want that upsetting. They didn't want the Romans upsetting. They didn't want people to start a revolution because they weren't worried about dying. What if I die? There'll be eternal reward. So I'll start a revolution. I'll be really reckless. I'll do something dangerous. I'll wave my angry fist at the Romans. And in today's world, we can be aware of people or groups who aren't afraid to die or aren't afraid to kill other people as well on the basis of Having a better eternal experience in paradise, so people say. Well, think, well, just let's let's just be wary. But what does Jesus say? He says, "Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God?" It's fascinating that through this chapter or so, when Jesus is being asked so many difficult questions, he asks questions that are more challenging and more penetrating. I've got a question for you, God. Why have I had to put up with this? Why did that happen? What happens to people in this situation? And we whether they're hypothetical or whether they're actually questions from our own experience, we, we've, we can fire our questions at God. Actually, Jesus comes back with some questions which are more uh, more pertinent. Do we know the scriptures? Do we know the power of God? The Sadducees could, be, uh, could consider that. Do, do we know the power of God? The, the Sadducees assumed... That resurrection was a continuation of this life and this body. They could only really imagine of eternity in the light of what they already knew. So it would have to be pretty much the same. Therefore, if you were married, you would be married. If you had been married, that would still be an issue. That might not be so much the way that we're likely to think now, but the same idea. All we can think of is what we've experienced in the here and now and what we know, what we've smelt and what we've touched and what we've seen with our own eyes, what we've experienced in our own lives. And therefore, when sometimes people think about eternity, they're still just thinking of it very much in earthly terms. Well, if there is an afterlife, I think I'd rather be in hell because I'd rather be with people who are just a bit more relaxed And they know they're sinners, but they're more easygoing. It'll be a bit more fun. I don't want to be with holy people. I don't want to be saints, because my experience of saints is choirs and robes and funny ceremonies. And it's all a bit stilted and serious and perhaps a bit hypocritical as well. So you can't have fun with those people. So I don't want to be there for eternity. I'd much rather go here. What? Well it's it's just seeing glory as if it were just very earthly. And it's not like that. In a way, that's what Jesus is coming to them and saying. No, you're you're thinking of this in just earthly physical terms. You don't you don't know the power of God. He doesn't just resuscitate people and just leave us as we are for eternity. It's not just a continuation of everything that's happened already, it's distinctly different, demonstrating his incredible power when the dead rise they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage they'll be like the angels in heaven like angels in the sense of living forever and and therefore if we're living forever we won't need to be married because we won't need to have babies we won't need to keep reproducing in order to maintain humanity we'll be living for Forever. That could seem a bit odd. Or can seem a bit hard. For those who particularly. Value their marriage. We've got such a special relationship now. I don't want to think about the prospect of. That not being the case anymore. Um, These can be hard words. From Jesus. To hear. But. Partly the reason why those who are married, probably, highly value their relationship with their spouse is because we live in a dark world. We live in a world which doesn't really do unconditional love and peace and joy and patience and kindness. So we psych ourselves up to go out into the world, whatever that might involve, knowing that we might get a bit of flack, that people are against us, We live in a messy and complicated world. Oh, thank goodness there's this person who's made promises to me and there's a a bedrock of security and a relationship um, where whatever's happening out there, I know that together we've got this haven here of acceptance and love where I am cherished. So, again, if we just think in earthly terms, we think, well, I don't want to be without that in glory. I think in glory, we'll not have to psych ourselves up to go outside the front door. Because that unconditional love and acceptance, joy and peace and harmony will be throughout the kingdom. Everybody with each other, for each other loving each other, giving to each other, patient with each other, kind with each other, we'll have a quality of relationship in glory with everyone else who's there that we just simply can't imagine here. Maybe marriage is one way in which we might just get a, a hint of it if we're not having a disagreement of some sort. Get a, get a hint, but it's only that. So mine and Rachel's relationship we'll be better, even better, in glory. Even though we won't be married there. But then it'll, we'll be so amazed in our relationship with Christ and the whole body that we'll not be missing out. And for those, these might, words might not seem that hard, if, if life has been just really difficult, really painful, really messy... Relationships haven't worked out, or a marriage hasn't worked out, or numerous marriages haven't worked out. Well, the Bible reveals to us that what awaits in heaven, the glory there, will outweigh all the pain. Well, nothing could outweigh it. No, heaven will do. And our our relationship there with Christ and all of our uh, brothers and sisters, do we know? The power of God. Do we remember that nothing is impossible for him? Do we dwell on the fact uh, that he's not restricted by how things are in the earthly realm? All that can happen is what we've already experienced or variations on that theme. Are our prayers energized with the faith that says nothing is impossible for God? And do we know do we know the power of God and do we know the Word of God? The Sadducees didn't. For a few reasons, they had decided that only the first five books of the Old Testament were scripture, were from God, the rest couldn't really be trusted. Which means that Jesus' answer to their question is brilliant because he doesn't turn to Isaiah, he doesn't turn to the Psalms, he doesn't turn to Daniel chapter twelve. Because they didn't regard that as authoritative. He turned to Exodus and he turned to Moses' encounter at the bush. The bush that was aflame but that wasn't burned up. And says, look, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He was showing them from what they did regard to be true... That there must be a future for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if a God who's called himself the I Am of covenants and promise can say can still refer to himself in those terms, he's not the God of the dead. I, I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. So you are badly mistaken it's a bit of a blunt ending to the conversation or it's not really even a conversation like the other ones have been they said some stuff jesus answered and that was it as far as we've seen here in um, mark's gospel so it confronts us it helps us it challenges us we can be aware of what people say are we aware of what the bible says Are we in danger of in any way drifting into the worldview that the Sadducees had? In other words, because they didn't know the power of God, and because they didn't know the word of God, they were actually very much living for the here and now. They were very religious, very conservative on the one hand. On the other hand, their motto could well have been, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And if we've forgotten the power of God, and if we've forgotten the scriptures, we can start to think in the same terms. And what matters is that figure, the bottom of my bank balance, and that holiday that I'm looking forward to, that's that's what's giving me true joy. We're just focused on the here and now, and we don't want Jesus to come and upset how our life is ordered we don 't want Jesus to come with his questions. We want things to be pretty much like that in a material world, living for just earthly pleasures. The Bible just sets before us more so a great incentive for living for god and uh, and paul Paul can say as much look if. If there's no resurrection, why did I face wild beasts in Ephesus? Why did I put myself in danger if, if, it's, if the gospel is just about this life? But he says in, in Philippians chapter 3, and perhaps with this we'll, we'll kind of come to a, uh, a close. He said in, in Philippians 3 verse 7, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. "...compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead." He's, he's had a lot to his profit, but all of that was a loss compared to knowing Christ, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. A sense of just adventure, of pursuing, of believing, uh, not trying to just live a reckless life, but, but living for a higher goal than his own comfort and bank balance. And we're encouraged... In the same, a life that's shaped by the word of God, where our expectations are shaped by knowing the power of God, and that, like Jesus, we're caught up on the mission of God, pursuing Him and what He wants to do in this planet, knowing that eternal glories and pleasures await for those who put their trust in Him. Amen. I will pray, and uh, then I think we'll. uh We'll worship God. (laughs) Father God, you have made us to be citizens of heaven and citizens of earth at the same time. And whilst we're in the, earth, in the world, Lord. We don't want to be of it. I pray, Lord God, that by looking at this scripture, by considering it together, you'd help us to lift our eyes, that you'd help us to set our minds on things that are above. We can think, Lord God, that those who are heavenly minded are of no earthly use. But Father, rather, help us to see that those who are heavenly minded are of radical earthly use. Use. And so, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, strengthen our faith in what is to come, in what we don't see with our own eyes. Whether earthly life for us right now is incredibly comfortable and pleasurable, or whether it's painful or or even dreary, Father, help us to see where our citizenship lies in heaven. And help us, Lord Jesus, to, in faith and grace, follow in Christ's footsteps. A life of, of adventure with you. A life where, actually, we can say no to worldly pleasures. In faith. And where we can get caught up with your plan and purpose. We want to say, God, let your, let your kingdom come here on the earth. Let your will be done here. Let your name be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.